Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Heine. He is Distinguished University Scholar and Professor of Social and Cultural Psychology at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Heine's pioneering research has challenged key, key psychological assumptions in self-esteem, meaning, and the ways that people understand genetic constructs. He is the author of many acclaimed journal articles and books in the fields of social and cultural psychology, including Cultural Psychology, the top-selling textbook in the field. In 2016, he was elected as a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Dr. Reina, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hi, Ricardo. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to this. Okay, great. So let's start with some basic questions. You do research in the field of cultural psychology. Could you give us a brief overview of what the field is about and perhaps the types of questions it deals with? Sure. So the, the field of cultural psychology is interested in how our cultural experiences come to get inside our brains and ultimately shape the ways that we think. And um, so what research in psychology has revealed is that our, our, our brains are, are quite um, flexible. They're, they're, they're malleable, especially when we're young. And uh, we form new connections uh, in response to experiences that we have. And people in different cultures, different places of the world have different sets of experiences. And so they have uh, learned some uh, um, different uh, habits. Um, they, they, they form different connections in their brains and, and they adapt to different norms. And so this shapes the ways that they think across sort of all aspects of, of, uh, of our thinking. Mm -hmm. And what would be culture in the context of cultural psychology? Because I have anthropologists, biologists on the show, and they have somewhat different definitions of culture. So in cultural psychology, what is culture? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question, because as you're saying that... Um, people use the word culture to mean many different things. There's there's many different definitions out there. Um, I usually use two different definitions of culture or related definitions. One is that culture is a kind of information and it's a kind of information that we learn from others um, that guides our behavior. So just through communicating with each other, we're learning things from each other and this is cultural information. And then second, I use the word culture to refer to, you know, groups of people who are in a shared communicative context so that they are regularly sharing ideas with each other. And so we talk about those groups as a culture. Quite often as a shorthand, we refer to like national cultures where people tend to share a lot of information. But I mean, you can have other kinds of cultures too. You can have things like LGBT. Uh, culture, you can have, you know, um, uh, your university culture, you can have Mac user culture, and 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 so on. That sort of anything where there's a sh uh, a lot of information being shared regularly between people can form this shared set of norms and expectations. Mm 
Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I think that another interesting thing for us to explore here is so there's cultural diversity across cultures and cultures influence people's psychology at least to some extent. But where does this cultural diversity come from? Because I mean, sometimes I guess it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem here because yeah. culture influences psychology, but we have to have set in place, I guess, some psychological mechanisms for us to be able to produce culture. Correct? Right, right. No, that's, um, I think that's one of the most fascinating questions uh, in the field. It's also the most difficult one to study because cultures change over time, yet they can also have um, some persistence. But so to come to understand how the culture is that you live in, um, looking at it right at this moment won't give a very complete answer. It's just we can, you know, describe the different cultural norms, the different cultural practices, but how do they come to emerge there and not in other places? Um, so this has always been one of the most challenging questions, and um, there's been a lot of hand-waving going on to about how this emerged. Um, recently, there's been some interesting um, uh, work that has sort of demonstrated how some of these cultural norms come to be. So, um, for example, one way that you can see cultural norms come to be is through people's modes of subsistence. Um, uh, because uh, different um, agricultural practices involve uh, different ways of relating to people. And so one clear difference is uh, between farming rice and farming wheat. And uh, Thomas Talhelm at the University of Chicago, he's done a lot of work uh, in China and to a lesser degree in India, comparing regions of the country where rice is grown versus where wheat is grown. And the key difference is where wheat is grown, sort of the water just falls from the sky and people harvest their own crops. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of irrigation some places, um, but where rice is grown, it's, it's usually grown in paddies, uh, which are um, underwater, um, which requires uh, a lot of irrigation, which requires some centralized coordination, how, you know, so my farm can get water and your farm can get water. And so someone's managing this. And then also the harvesting of it is much more labor intensive, involves more organization uh, um, among families. And so where you have rice growing regions in China and in India, you tend to have more of this interdependent um, orientation towards others. Um, and where you have wheat growing uh, areas, you have uh, less of that, more of an independent orientation. So that's one example of how cultures come to be, is that you can have these different, um, you know, modes of subsistence, which uh, affect the nature of the society that, that emerges from it. Um, uh, another uh, great example of this, much more recently, um, my uh, former colleague, uh, Joe Henrik, had just published a book this year called The, uh, the, the Weirdest People in the World. And um, in that, he makes a, an argument that the reason that the West became weird, Western educated, industrialized, rich democratic societies are, are weird in the way that they're psychologically unusual, very individualistic. And he argues that it started way back in the sixth century um, uh, in Europe with um, some new uh, practices in the Catholic Church that uh, they had some marriage and family plans that they were trying to influence the ways that their followers um, 
structured their families and and they were very concerned about incest at the time and they made these rules that you you can't marry your cousins or your second cousins or even third cousins it was one change and that you can only have one wife as 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 a man could only have one wife and that um kids were expected to leave their home and start up their own households and these changes here led to people to have uh, a weaker kinship ties and so that they were thinking less as a clan of a my family against your family and, and more trying to um, uh, develop a more impersonal attitude towards others and, and then developing sort of a set of rules for how individuals can interact with others. And that that started the wheels turning towards um, the, the West becoming more individualistic. And, and he shows that the, the longer the Catholic Church has had an influence in different parts of Europe here, the, uh, the more pronounced are these psychological differences today. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's it's challenging work. So in, in Joe Hendricks' case, he had to actually go, you know, find which regions of Europe, how, how the, the Catholic Church's marriage and family plan was initiated around Europe, and then measuring in these different regions of Europe all of these psychological traits. And so it's it's challenging work. I'm sure there's many other good explanations for how this cultural diversity came to be, but it's ultimately a historical question because cultures change over time, and, and they're influenced by the geography, but um, they're also going to be influenced just by the social norms that have developed. And, and Joe Hendrick demonstrates that it can be something that seems rather trivial, or, uh, I mean, it's hard to imagine, like, cousin marriages? How does that affect how we think today? You know, it, it seems um, really unusual, but that's the thing with... Um, uh, culture evolves over time and so you can get this sort of path dependence that once you're on one path here you can't easily switch over to another path you can just sort of make minor changes on the current path that you're on and and so um uh you can get over time these very distinctive um cultural systems that 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 emerge that can be quite distinctive from place to place Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting that you mention weird societies or weird psychologies and individualism because in cultural psychology at least it seems to me that one of the sort of binary classifications that people use is individualism versus collectivism but are there other kinds of societies apart from individualistic ones and collectivistic ones yes certainly so a couple things one i would say that uh, individualism collectivism is an example of a kind of dimension by which cultures can vary and there can be many uh, different kinds of dimensions by which cultures can vary. Having said that, I do think individualism, collectivism, one, it's the most researched, but two, I would argue that it's probably going to be the the most impactful of any that ultimately do emerge. And and it just sort of shows the quandary we have as a, as a social species, that, you know, we are an individual, we, we are born as an individual, we die as an individual. Um, but at the same time, we're also part of these um, extended social networks. And the ways that we ultimately relate to others um, is, uh, I would argue, probably the, the, the most significant uh, difference that, that there, there can be across cultures. Thus far, 
individualism, collectivism is the dimension that's received the most amount of research. But there are other dimensions too. So another dimension is associated with hierarchy, how hierarchical societies are. So uh, for instance, con Confucianism is very much a hierarchical system of, of who you, you have obligations towards. So societies vary in terms of how flat or how hierarchical they are. Um, and another uh, dimension that's uh, received quite a bit of research is called tightness and looseness, um, especially Michelle Gelfand has done a lot of work on this. And, and this is how um, tolerant is a society of deviance from a norm. And you can have, um, you know, uh, a tight society. So, for instance, like uh, Switzerland's a relatively tight society where um, uh, th there's a clear norm and, and people are expected to follow the, these these clear norms. Uh, Japan's another example of a tight society. Uh, the U.S. contrast is a more loose society where there's more ways that individuals can be that, that, that are tolerated. Um, and uh, so that's another uh, key dimension that exists. And, and another one that's got uh, a lot of research interest recently um, is uh, something termed relational mobility. And especially um, uh, a social psychologist in Japan, Masaki Yuki, has done a lot of work on this. And what relational mobility is, is in the social ecology that you live in, what are your opportunities available for forming new relationships? And some places, um, especially rural places, um, but it varies more than just that, um, tend to have what's called low relational mobility. And that you, you're, the relationships that you have are ones that you're kind of born into and are part of the community. And there's not many opportunities to form new relationships with others, that you're just not in a situation where um, you, you have the uh, option to do that. And in that kind of situation, the situation of low relational mobility, you're not really going into looking at people in terms of evaluating them as maybe I could be having um, more desirable relationships with someone else and sort of uh, always um, thinking of relationships in, in this case is more of a closed market. And so you're not kind of shopping for for new relationships. And so in these kind of societies, people have more ambivalent attitudes towards relationships. They have, they have a lot of enemies because um, you can't avoid enemies. They're just part of the relationships around you. And actually, they're more like frenemies in that the sense that you have these ambivalent attitudes, you have, you know, positive attitudes towards them in some contexts, negative attitudes towards them in others. And on the other end, you have contexts of high relational mobility, where it's much more of an open market for relationships. And a more extreme example of that is in North America, a college campus, where a big university could have thousands of students there and, and they're going to many different classes, many different you know, fraternities or, or, or whatnot, have an opportunity to meet many different people. And in that context, there's competition then between people. And so people try to make themselves a more attractive relationship partner. So they're, they're trying to be nice to each other. They're, they're, they're trying to show how they can be desirable. And, um, and people are evaluating them this way. And it's not just romantic relationships, although that can be part of it, but other any kind of relationship, just that in an open market, you can choose, you know, should I spend time with you? Or, well, maybe that person over there might be more, more, uh, uh, I, I could benefit more from doing so. And just having this kind of attitude towards relationships really changes the ways that, that people think about others and how they present themselves too. Mm -hmm. So across cultures, there are some psychological mechanisms that are influenced by culture. And so they differ across societies. 
Uh, and later on in the interview, we're going to talk about some of them, like the fundamental attribution error, cognitive dissonance and others. Um, are these cognitive mechanisms that are influenced by society, uh, by culture, uh, I mean, are these influences permanent in terms of, okay, so if I live in a given culture, I acquire these psychological mechanisms, and if I move to a new culture, they mm -hmm. can't be altered, or can they? Yeah, no, that's 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 a that's a really good question, um, and it's uh, been a challenging one to study, but there's quite a bit of evidence on it. So if you think that every baby is born pretty much without culture, there's there's very little culture at the time a baby uh, is born, and so they have the potential to learn almost any kind of cultural system that they uh, they could learn any one of the human languages um, that exists as, as, as one important part of culture. So um, at the, the time of birth, we are very malleable that are actually it appears that our brains are programmed to acquire this, this cultural information that we're biologically prepared to do so. And so uh, we do start acquiring cultural information right from the, the beginning. But as we get older, uh, our brains do become uh, a little less malleable. And so uh, while we're younger, we're better able to learn new kinds of um, systems and, and have our, 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 you know, our brains are forming connections um, uh, to accommodate those systems or, or that afford uh, these different ways of thinking. And um, so when you're young enough and you learn one culture and then say your family moves to another place, you can quite easily learn that, that, that new other culture. And to a degree, there might even be some overriding of the ex existing culture that you can largely lose a lot of your initial culture um, if, if you move at a young age. And you can see that with uh, language, for instance, that people who you know have moved to another place, they can largely lose that initial language that they learned if it's not... Um, it's not um, if they're not encountering it much anymore. Um, however, uh, at some point as you get older, it gets more difficult to um, uh, acquire new culture information. The evidence for language is the clearest with this, that um, after puberty, roughly puberty, um, it gets more difficult to, to master uh, a language. And so usually people will have a, an accent from their original, uh, from their mother tongue, um, as they learn languages afterwards, that it's hard to completely learn and master it. And it seems that that's also true for acquiring other aspects uh, of our culture, that uh, after the after we hit puberty, it becomes more difficult to, uh, to learn uh, another culture. You can still learn a lot of things, but the kinds of stuff that especially slow to change are your preferences for things, that you just kind of like some things better because they are familiar and they resonate with, you know, the first draft of your brain was uh, um, constructed with the, the the first culture that that you encountered, and um, and yeah, if uh, um, that e even if you go to learn other cultural systems later on, uh, it's uh, it's going to be hard to overwrite that because your brain becomes less malleable with time. So yes, you can learn new cultures and people do it all the time. People are immigrating uh, all around the world. Um, but the later you move, the harder it is to pick up that new culture. And uh, the more your earlier, your, your mother tongue, your native culture will be influencing you. Mm -hmm. 
would you say that there's a sensitive period for acculturation? I mean, is there a time frame, a time window that people have to acquire a particular culture? And if they go beyond that period without doing so, they can't really acquire culture in general? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think so. And, and, and again, the evidence points to around puberty is, is this time. And so it's this is a difficult thing to study because the ideal way, like if I got to design the experiment with no regards for human ethics, um, the way you would want it is to have some people, you know, in you don't expose them to a culture until they're, you know, uh, certain ages to see it, you know, how well can they learn culture at, at different ages. Of course, we, uh, we we can't do this. It's sometimes called the forbidden experiment. Um, but there have been some instances of people whose lives have tragic experiences in their lives that kind of, you know, uh, mirrored this uh, forbidden experiment where there have been um, uh, children who, um, feral children who seem to have been raised in, in, in the wild or some other children who suffered some horrific child abuse. And um, the, the best evidence uh, is with respect to language. Language is an easier thing to measure in culture because there's like specific rules of grammar and, and, and syntax and, and vocabulary. Um, and it, it does look like um, these children who missed out on that early period of acquiring language have a much more difficult time and they don't really master language the same way um, that people who've been exposed to one from a very young age do. So it does seem that um, well, that there is a sensitive window for acquiring culture and language and the um, what this uh, what this suggests is that we really are biologically prepared to acquire this information right from the beginning. That we are, you know, dependent on acquiring cultural information to be able to survive. That unlike other species here, we actually are are born with relatively few instincts or relatively you know few uh, cases of pre-programmed knowledge. Uh, about things. We have to acquire this information to be able to survive. And those of us who are better able to at acquiring it are going to be more likely to thrive and survive and have, have surviving uh, offspring. And um, uh, we come into this world very young, too young. You know, we, um, we are um, very um, uh, dependent when we are first born. And it's during this period here that we seem to be biologically prepared to to acquire that information because our survival depends on it. And if you miss that um, because of, you know, horrific child abuse or um, or being raised by wolves in the forest, you, um, uh, you're missing the ability to acquire this, this key information that we need to survive. And so it seems it's, it, I mean, it's hard to draw confident conclusions from these case studies of feral children because they've had, you know, many other tragic experiences gone along with that. But it fits with the other evidence of just how people acquire a second language and acquire a, a second culture. There's there's parallels that you see people uh, acculturating more, diff, uh, have a harder time acculturating after um, puberty. So what we found in our studies, we, we did some research here in, in Vancouver, has um, a, a very large population of Hong Kong immigrants. That's one of the, the, the biggest immigrant groups. And they, they uh, arrived here um, various ages and over a, a fairly extended period of time. And so we looked at 
Hong Kong immigrants to Canada based on what age they were that when they first moved here and how long they were here and then looking at sort of the preferences that they had towards Canadian culture you know towards Canadian foods towards Canadian customs Canadian humor stuff like that and what we found is that people who arrived before the age of 15 the longer they were here the more Canadian they became but um, after 15 more time did not make them more Canadian over time that it's that they um, uh, seems that they're ability to acquire these um, uh, uh, these new preferences uh, um, is, is just much more difficult after 15. It's just harder to acquire it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier weird uh, cultures or weird mm -hmm. societies, but uh, is it the case that across the globe the cultures that we find nowadays are different from earlier cultures in terms of their traits? I mean, since the advent of our species, have human cultures been changing in some way? Yeah, well, so, I mean, cultures are inherently dynamic. So um, uh, they, they, they do, they're always changing and they're changing with the advent of new ideas and, and new technologies are, are one thing where we can really um, see this. So, you know, since there's been the internet, um, uh, since we've had social media, for instance, that, that people do things uh, um, a little differently. So we expect cultures to always be changing. We just say at the same time, though, um, there is this, this path dependence that we don't like. So now that we have social media, it's not like we completely erase the culture and start off all over again. No, it's just the existing culture here gets modified with this with this new introduction. So yes, individual cultures are are always changing. But yeah, if we look back sort of more at a global level here, how are cultures around the world? How are they changing? Well, there's um, a few key trends that that we can see. Um, so one uh, over time. Um, especially in, in recent century, um, cultures are becoming more interconnected than they were before. Um, so, I mean, there's always been cultural exchanges um, between uh, uh, cultures, but in the past, it was largely just neighboring cultures. There wasn't that many occasions where people would meet someone from a, from, from a distant culture. So now, though, with, you know, um, innovations in transportation and in just communication technologies, such as Hollywood movies or or um, you know uh, uh, social media um, there's more information changing so that's bringing cultures together uh, in ways that they they weren't as much in the past and there seem to be sort of two interesting consequences to them coming together on, on the one hand there's a bit of a homogenizing force so now everywhere around the world uh, well at least maybe cities and most places around the world you can have things like a Starbucks coffee um, and uh, you can watch a Hollywood movie um, or you can build your Ikea furniture um, that these are some, you know, these are cultural products and they're available all around the world. And so that's making people's experiences somewhat similar around the world. But parallel with that, you also have, um, uh, because more people are, are moving, you, you're having more cultural diversity in many places, especially in, in big urban centers. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, like in Vancouver, where, where I live, it's um, 
uh, you know, we have a very large population of people from from East Asia and and from South Asia, um, and and from uh, various parts of Europe, all all living together. So in our daily lives, we're meeting people with more diverse backgrounds. You're more likely to be interacting with someone from who has different cultural norms on average than people were in the past. But at the same time, we're also more likely to be exposed to some of the common cultural ideas uh, together. So that's that's one change that's happened, um, uh, and especially accelerated over the last century, um, where we are more interconnected than than we were before. Um, a second change that seems to be occurring largely worldwide is that individualism does seem to be increasing worldwide to a degree, and um, so uh, it's kind of in things that uh, show evidence for this is that people uh, are more likely to be living alone now in many places around the world than they were in the past. That's that's a sort of one kind of marker of it, are more likely to be giving the children unique names than they were before. So this un- desire for uniqueness um, uh, go- goes with uh, ind- individualism. Um, and uh, so some things that uh, cultivate this individualism, it seems, is that um, one, the world is becoming more secular in, in many places. Um, and uh, so that's kind of cutting people off from old traditions, um, traditional, you know, explanations for, for how the how the world works. Um, the world is becoming wealthier. And on average, that also uh, contributes towards more individualism in that people have at least more uh, abilities to um, have more choices available to them, um, and this can uh, lead to more individualism. And also just um, electronic entertainment. There's more ways that people can entertain themselves, at least um, uh, you know, be, be by themselves, entertain themselves. And, and those things are, are spreading uh, around the world. So we can see you know, a, a push worldwide towards more individualism the rates would vary from place to place. And um, I don't think that means we're all going to head towards the same place necessarily, but at least um, there is, uh, we, we see this, this, this worldwide change. And another uh, worldwide change, which I, I find the most interesting one and, and, and the one that um, uh, is perhaps the most challenging to explain too, is uh, IQ levels are increasing uh, around the world. Um, and uh, the, this was first noted by this uh, New Zealand um, psychologist, James Flynn, who is noting that IQ tests, because they are standardized, meaning that the average IQ is always set at 100. So um, uh, whenever there's a new test comes out, it has to be normed versus the old test. So some people have to take questions in both the, the new test and the old test and, and uh, adjustments are made. And then you can actually see how performance has been changing uh, across time and that IQ has been rising around the world and especially on measures of abstract problem-solving intelligence. So you don't see much in the way of increases in things like vocabulary or uh, arithmetic knowledge. You don't see much uh, evidence of that. But for just abstract problem-solving intelligence, it's it's been increasing um, by really quite staggering amounts that um, uh, uh, about a standard deviation in say 30 to 40 years which is a, a very huge uh, jump in in terms of um, IQ and uh, so uh, I think this is evidence first of all just that so much of uh, our intelligence is what we learn 
from from our world that you're not born with a set amount of intelligence it's it's heritable but it's uh your intelligence is is uh, acquired from your interactions with 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 the world you are learning new skills new ways of thinking and um so one thing that seems to be uh, driving this increase in iq is that people are getting more education than they had before and education does boost intelligence you can you can see it there's some interesting studies that compare uh the length of the school year in some places the school year is a little longer and people there are actually um their iq is rising subtly but a detectable difference even just a few weeks longer of education in a year leads to um more intelligence so people are getting more education um, but that still can't explain all of the effects because some of these increases in IQ are, are found in samples that um, aren't getting more education that they're like military samples where people are um, dealing with like a high school uh, education yet still there's this rise and it's indicating think, that our world is more complex now and requires more training of abstract problem solving um, some suggest and here's where it's it's actually really hard to test these explanations but um some have suggested that it's uh, our popular culture is actually becoming more complex and is driving part of this process so video games for instance have become far more complex and involve a lot of problem solving um in ways that it didn't uh, uh, a generation or two ago like the first video games those are the ones that my generation played there wasn't really any problem solving to do and 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 now they're they're vastly more complex and just um the television programming now too it's the the shows are far more complex involve far more characters more complex um plot lines um a lot of you know going back and forth in different periods of time you know you think of the popularity of game of thrones and what a complex long complex show this was and it's so popular because people are wanting this so that they're actually wanting more complex shows and there still is mindless entertainment to be sure but um uh even the mindless entertainment today seems like it has more complexities in it than the mindless entertainment uh, from before. There's always been mindless entertainment. So um, it does seem that uh, it's, it's, this is really hard to demonstrate because IQ is increasing everywhere. So it's, it's really hard to do the appropriate studies to figure out what is the, the driving factors. But it does seem that aspects of our lives are more complex now, which re require more abstract problem solving uh, than in the past. Okay, so let's now run through some examples of psychological mechanisms that vary across societies. So okay. what is the endowment effect and how does it vary? Yeah, so, so the endowment effect um, is, is an interesting phenomenon um, and one I don't think would have been so obvious that it would vary across cultures. And what the endowment effect is, once you own something, you endow it with more value compared to things that you don't own. That it's just that, you know, my computer that I'm talking to you on here, it's mine and that makes it kind of special. And um, so if I was to sell this computer to you, um, I would probably want more money than you'd be willing to pay. And this is because it seems more valuable because, because it's mine. And, and you can see these transitions as soon as something is owned. Like as soon as it's okay, now it's yours, it boosts in value compared to someone who, who doesn't own it. And there are uh, a number of uh, fa um, factors that contribute to the endowment effect. One seems to be, though, that uh, it shows what we call the uh, 
extended self. So I think of, you know, who are you? Who, who, who am I? And I think, well, me, this individual, but it's, it's more than that. It's also while well, my family is, is, is part of me and, you know, my, my, my country is, is part of me and also even my things are part of me. And so, um, that our attitudes towards ourselves also color our, our possessions. And so in general, people who have more positive attitudes towards themselves also come to have more positive attitudes towards their things. So the endowment effect tracks levels of self-esteem um, and uh, um, the levels of self-esteem are, are, are higher in, uh, in, in North America, for instance, say, than compared with in East Asia. Um, and so in East Asia, you see less evidence of an endowment effect. There still is a little bit. It's not like it's not there at all but it's not at the same magnitude that it is in, in the West. And um, so, yeah, and then, uh, a big part of this seems to be just this generalization of these positive feelings of me, I'm great, and so my stuff is great. And so if you want to buy my stuff, it's going to cost you because it's great stuff because it comes from me. Um, and so it's that kind of attitude of how these positive self-views will color um, the things that people own. So that, that's an example of how uh, the endowment effect varies. Yeah. So another effect is the similarity attraction effect. Could mm -hmm. you explain it and does it also vary across cultures? Yeah. So the similarity attraction effect is um, one of the um, strongest explanations for why we're attracted to certain people. Um, and uh, so, you know, that... Um, uh, to a certain extent, there, there's some similarity in, in who people are physically attracted to. So like if you rate, you know, who are the, you know, the tens, who are their, the nines, there's, there's some agreement about that. The similarity attraction effect, though, helps explain why we're attracted to different people. And I don't just mean romantic attraction, but just with, with friendships, too. And what the similarity attraction effect is, is that people who are similar to me are the people that I would come to like more and say, wow, you know, you have similar attitudes to what I have, makes me like you a little more. Oh, you have, you know, um, uh, you know, similar abilities, similar interests, similar personality, all of these things um, uh, make someone uh, more attractive. And uh, I think the similarity attractive attraction effect is, you know, evidence of the ultimate egotism of, of people that, you know, the kind of people that seem the, the most attractive to me are those who are just like me, that that people like me are the, the best people. I think that sort of shows the ultimate egotism in the similarity attraction effect. And um, it does appear universally, but the magnitude of it is uh, varies. And there seems to be at least two um, uh, factors that influence the magnitude of similarity attraction effect. One, just like I was explaining with the endowment effect, is it depends on one's level of of self-esteem, how positively you view yourself. Because if I have high self-esteem and think that I'm really good and that means that my qualities are really good and I see the same qualities in you, those are good qualities. And so I would be attracted to it. But if I have really low self-esteem and don't think myself as so positively and I have these qualities and I think of other kind of lousy qualities because I you know, don't think very positively of myself and I see you have those same qualities, lousy qualities, I wouldn't be so attracted to you. So that's one thing that um, uh, ex uh, predicts the strength of the similarity attraction effect is levels of self-esteem, 
and those vary uh, across culture. So where there's higher self-esteem, there's more similarity attraction effect. And a, and a second factor is something I was referring to earlier with relational mobility. If um, if you're in an open relationship market and you have a lot of options for forming new relationships, then you start attending to, well, what makes one person a more desirable uh, partner to me than others? And that's where uh, similarity comes into play, that if I have lots of different people to choose from, I'm going to be looking for the most attractive ones to me, and, and, and similarity is a reliable predictor of, of attraction. So where there's lower relational mobility, people are just weighing all aspects of attractiveness less, including similarity. And again, I don't mean this just, just for romantic attraction, and I don't mean this just in terms of physical attributes, but just what makes someone a, a desirable relationship partner. And so that's another instance of a, uh, of, a, of a finding that actually does seem to be universal and everyone shows a bit of a similarity attraction effect, but it's more pronounced uh, where self-esteem is higher and where relational mobility is higher. Mm-hmm. What about overconfidence? Is it also a universe, uh, psychological universal? Yeah. So this relates to... Um, what I'm saying about endowment effect and, and similarity attraction effect is that um, people vary around the world in terms of how much uh, overconfidence they have or what I think is a uh, sort of a, a more basic level explaining it and just how positively do they tend to view themselves. And um, uh, the, the way I see it is that what is probably a cultural universal is that people want to be a good person. And I would think that should be expected to be universal. It's hard to compare this because the ways that people become a good person in different societies vary. But we all want to be the kind of person that our culture is telling us is, is the, the most appropriate, most desirable kind of person. And in the West, I think uh, the way of becoming a good person is wrapped up with ideas about self-esteem. And that's like that I come to view myself positively. That's what self-esteem is ultimately about, is having a positive uh, self-evaluation. So thinking about oneself in, in, in positive terms, that um, this helps one achieve goals of self-sufficiency, um, uh, which is very important in more uh, individualistic cultures. Um, and it, it helps one, um, uh, it, it also feels good to think that I, you know, I have good qualities, that it feels good to think that. And in individualistic societies, people weigh more their feelings, their feelings matter more, uh, because they're guiding behavior more. Um, And um, so self esteem is especially valued um, in the West. And the ways of becoming a good person in East Asia are uh, wrapped up more in terms of face, sort of face being a currency. And um, so, uh, in English, at least, the expression, you know, to lose face, to maintain face, these are um, these were, uh, words that came into the English language in the 19th century as direct translations from Chinese. And so this is, uh, the concerns about face are much more elaborated in East Asian context. And what face really entails, it's a little different than um, the English definition of it, but it's... Um, uh, it's being concerned with how others are evaluating you with respect to um, uh, your abilities to fulfill your role. So we have different roles here, and you are maintaining face to the extent that others are thinking you're doing a good job at fulfilling your role. So a key difference with self-esteem is self-esteem ultimately is that I decide I'm doing a good job. 
Um, and then with face, ultimately, it's that you're deciding whether I'm doing a good job. And that's now beyond my psychological control to be able to do much about. So for my own self-evaluations, I can rely on self-deceptive tactics and sort of, you know, edit my memories. So I remember that, you know, those my successful memories, I, I focus on those and I try to forget about the ones where I, I, I didn't do such a good job. With face, you can't do that. And if you want to maintain face, the best strategy I could have is to have others think that I'm doing a good job is to be very vigilant to where I might have any shortcomings, where I might be jeopardizing others' approval. And so, yeah, what we find in um, in East Asia, especially in Japan, where I've done a lot of this research, it's, it's really quite a pronounced tendency there, is that people tend to show this self-criticism where they're very aware of negative information about themselves. Um, it, uh, and whereas in the West, people are, tend to be very aware of positive information about themselves. And being aware of negative information about themselves doesn't have the same negative consequences that it does in, in the West. So in the West, when people are being self-critical, that seems to pave the path to depression. Then like if you're just thinking of all the things that are wrong with me, ultimately there's going to be psychological cost to that. But in uh, East Asia, you see uh, much less of that, and it's and it seems to be because um, there's a different attitude towards abilities. In that, in the West, they tend to be seen as more fixed. That you're kind of born a unique person, and you have this set of skills and abilities uh, um, that make you who you are. Whereas um, in East Asia, people are more likely to think of these as a products of your efforts. So if you're doing badly at something. That means you you're, haven't tried hard enough. So you need to work harder with the expectation that you will get better. So um, this difference in self-evaluations then, uh, I think, is um, reflects a, a fundamental difference in the way that people even think of abilities. And if you think of a, uh, abilities as, um, as fluid and changing and that it's a process that you're always working to become better, then it's useful to focus on where there's more room for improvement, where you're not doing very well. But in contrast, if you tend to think of abilities as more sort of self-defining and, and rather stable, which Westerners seem to do more so, then it's more adaptive to focus on on your strengths, uh, thinking of that these are enduring characteristics and and then viewing yourself as having the, uh, the abilities to be able to um, lead a successful life. Mm -hmm. So earlier I've mentioned the phenomenon of cognitive dissonance. Is it mm -hmm. also found in all cultures? Yeah, so that's um, cognitive dissonance is a, a, a it's one of social psychology's favorite phenomena, and it's a, it's a really interesting one. It's 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 a tendency that people have to rationalize their behaviors in a way to convince themselves that their lives make sense and that they're a good person. So um, uh, one way that we can see this is, you know, when you make a decision, maybe you want to buy a new car and, you know, there's two different models of car you're comparing yourself, you're comparing between and you kind of torn which one should I go with after you make that decision so say you're choosing between you know a, a, a mazda and an audi uh and then if you ultimately choose the, the the mazda that's when you would experience cognitive dissonance and cognitive dissonance would see well maybe i made the wrong choice and um and so but 
you are motivated. People often are motivated to view themselves as being sensible and, and good and someone who makes the right choice. So what you do is you, at that point, try to convince yourself that why I'm choosing the Mazda was the good thing to do with all of its, you know, positive features. That's what you focus on. And all of the, the, the negative features of the car you didn't choose. Um, that's also what you focus on to convince yourself that the decision that you made is the right decision. Another example of, of dissonance in action is that we want, again, to view our, our lives as sensible. So we sometimes can find ourselves doing things that don't really fit with our understandings about ourselves. Um, and so what we will often do is we'll change our attitudes towards those things so that our life appears to make more sense. This is often studied in psychology by asking people to, to write an essay that goes against their values. So asking university students to write an essay arguing for a tuition increase. And um, what you find is if you ask people to do it, say, would you mind doing this for me? It's up to you, but would, it would help me if you would do it. Almost everyone would agree, interestingly, when you ask them like that. Um, and afterwards, they will now think uh, they will believe that a tuition increase is a good idea. Their private attitudes change because they're left saying, well, why am I doing why am I arguing for a tuition increase when I don't have to? I guess I must be in favor of it. Whereas those who are not given any choice and are just told that we require, please write an essay on this. You, um, this is the only essay topic that's acceptable. Those people don't show this attitude change. So those are some examples of what cognitive dissonance is, this, this rationalization. And because it really is uh, at core here is a desire to view oneself positively, that I'm a sensible person who makes good decisions. I don't do you know, silly things like argue for positions that I don't that I don't believe in. Um, it's about trying to convince oneself that one is 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 good, and so you do see more evidence of it in places where people have a stronger desire for positive self views. There's less evidence of it uh, in East Asia. Again, I think it's it's one of these effects where it's probably universal, but just much more pronounced in the West than than it is in the East. Um, although there's uh, many more studies that could be done on cognitive distance outside of uh, of the West. And all of this, I should say, um, is predicated on the limited database that we have in psychology. The vast majority of psychological research happens in Western countries, especially in the US, and especially with college students. These are the people we call weird people. Um, and because of that, we the phenomena that we study are based on the sample that we've been studying. And so our understanding of cognitive dissonance and similarity attraction effect and so on is based on, on the sample where um, these motivations are quite clear and evident. And we just don't have as much data from many other parts around the world. Um, but in the case of cognitive dissonance, the little bit of data that we do have in East Asia is that it doesn't seem to be as pronounced or as reliable. It seems to be a somewhat different phenomenon. Mm-hmm. What about the fundamental attribution error? Has it been studied in different cultures? Yeah. So, uh, again, most of the research has been done in the West, but there has been some research outside of the West. Um, and so what the fundamental attribution error is, um, is that uh, it's involved when you're trying to explain other people's behaviors. So, you know, we can't read other people's minds, but we're a social creature. We're interacting with others. We're trying to figure them out. And so when we see someone do something, we're left trying to think, well, why is that person doing that? And there's 
really two main categories of explanations that we can have for why someone is doing that. One is because that reflects their their personality deep down. That's the kind of person they are. That's why they're acting that way. We call that making a dispositional attribution. We're attributing their behavior to their inner disposition. The other set of explanations, though, would involve that there's something in the situation that is causing that person to act that way. Um, so imagine we see someone, you know, um, arguing very rudely with a, a shop clerk. You know, why are they doing that? Well, if we say it's their disposition, they have an unpleasant personality, that could explain it. Or it could be a situation that maybe this shop clerk sold some defective merchandise and is not, you know, going to uh, refund refund it. And that's why the person is, is upset. Um, so there's always those two categories of explanation that we could turn to. But what the fundamental attribution error refers to is that we tend to ignore the situation, that the situation it's very difficult for people to keep in mind the situation that other people are in. We're pretty good at being able to explain our own situations. It's more salient to us. I know the experiences that I'm in, the situation I'm in, so I can see why that's affecting me, but I can't really see the situation, how it's affecting you. Um, so the fundamental attribution error is this tendency to explain people's behavior in terms of their personality, ignoring the situation. And this too is more pronounced in the West. Um, uh, again, it's something that I think is, it's a, uh, looks to be like it's probably a universal tendency is fair to say, but the magnitude is much, much more pronounced in the West. And, uh, and I think that reflects that one in many other parts of the world, the situational constraints are stronger so that they're more salient, they're more obvious that, you know, that people act the ways that they do because they have roles and they're acting in ways consistent with their their roles. That's what's guiding people's behavior. And then this other influence of your personality and people everywhere have personalities, um, but the amount of weight that we put on people's personalities for causing events in the world varies. And in the West, we in an individualistic society, we understand people in terms of their inner psychological qualities. That's what we are assuming drives behavior. And so that's what we attend to. In uh, many other places outside of the West, um, there's uh, more emphasis on uh, the roles that people have and what is different behavior that's appropriate in different situations. And and uh, so people are attending less to personality. It's, it's not as impactful as it is seen in the West. Um, so there is this difference in the fundamental attribution error that there's more explanations of why people do the things that they do in terms of situational factors outside of the West. Mm -hmm. I would also like to ask you about mental illness. And I mean, two different kinds of questions could be asked here. One of them is uh, how, mental, how the classification of mental illnesses vary across culture. I mean, what are the kinds of psychological phenomena and behaviors that people say or classify as mental illness in different cultures? But I would like to focus on another aspect. Is it that people in different cultures experience mental illness in different ways? Um, yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll start with your, your, your second uh, uh, question here. So, uh, yes, and, and um, so I think there's really sort of two categories of mental illnesses of, of psychopathologies uh, around the world, or at least 
I think it's easy to, easier to think of them in two categories. One category uh, is often termed a culture-bound syndrome. And these are psychopathologies that really are specific to certain cultural contexts that you just don't see much of them outside of those cultural contexts. And um, um, th th there's, there's a number of them. So, for instance, in, in Japan, there's this condition called hikikomori, which, um, uh, uh, which is a condition which is common um, among, especially among boys, about four times as many boys as girls, and especially uh, around adolescence is when it kicks in. And what happens is um, uh, people refuse, they drop out of the social world. And they refuse to um, leave their rooms, to uh, stop going to school, don't um, ha have a job, and they can do this for for years. Uh, I, I know this one family quite well, um, and uh, the boy there is no longer a boy. He's 35 years. He's been in his bedroom, um, and uh, with almost no social uh, contact out outside the world. And you see it to small degrees in in other places. Um, school refusal is a term that, that's, that's used um, um, in, in the West, for instance. But um, it just the prevalence of it. In, in Japan, it's uh, estimated about one kid per class, um, like a high school class that, that is experiencing this. Um, and it people vary. Some people are in their um, experiencing this for a relatively short term, for months or, or years, but some um, are doing this yet for decades. And it really only started becoming a phenomenon after the Second World War. And um, and one explanation that's given is Japan is a very tight society, that there's, it's expected that when you, you know, you're 18 when you graduate from high school and you start university, then at, at 18 and, and not starting university would be a big problem. That's what all the expectations are. That's the path. And then uh, in um, in your fourth year university, that's when companies come hiring, and that's when you get a job. And traditionally, it would be uh, expected that this would be a lifelong career, although that's been been weakening uh, recently. But so that there's this, these very tight norms for how you're supposed to be, and if you if you are not fitting into those norms, there's not really much of a place for you. And um, so there's this this reaction is just removing oneself from society. Um, uh, an another example uh, of this that's um, more common in the West, mind you, is, are eating disorders such as uh, anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, um, which uh, are more do see, they seem to be culture bound in the sense that their um, uh, their rates vary greatly across society and across time, and it was like so in the. 1980s, 1990s in the U.S. is when they were really peaking um, and at uh, much higher rates than had been seen in centuries before and much higher rates than you see in, in, in other countries. Um, and so these are examples of conditions that, that seem to emerge from a certain set of, uh, of cultural um, uh, ex experiences and that you don't see them much in, in, in other places. But there are also other psychological disorders which are viewed as quite universal so examples of those are things like um, depression and, and, and schizophrenia. They're, they're found all around the world, although the, the, the rates that they're found do vary. Um, and uh, what makes this question more challenging, though, I think is one of the most challenging questions in, in the field of cultural psychology is comparing mental illness across cultures because 
depression for one that the the symptoms that make up depression vary in their presentation in different cultures so um in in the west uh depression consists the the key symptoms are having lower mood and inexperienced uh inability to experience pleasure and having um low low mood um there's also some physical symptoms that can come along with it, such as problems sleeping, um, loss of appetite, sometimes headaches. Um, in China, for instance, though, depression seems to be much more uh, focused on those other physical symptoms, those somatic symptoms. So there's people uh, who may be diagnosed with depression in China often don't even have depressed mood as one of their their key symptoms it's really that i'm having trouble sleeping i have lost appetite i have trouble focusing those are the symptoms that um, people are, are are describing and we call that um, more of a somatized expression of depression and in the west it's more of a psychologized presentation of depression and so it gets very complicated comparing these two like how are how are we sure this is the um, the, the the same illness? And um, they uh, people do respond in both cultures to uh, antidepressants, um, although those are very blunt instruments which seem to affect many kinds of uh, conditions. Um, but uh, so even you know a universal condition like depression, its its presentation varies in, in the symptoms. Schizophrenia too. So um, schizophrenia has actually um, less variability in its prevalence around the world compared with um, most other psychological conditions. So so rates of depression, for instance, in the U.S. are about five times higher than they are in China. Um, but uh, with, with schizophrenia, it's it's a pretty narrow band. There's not that, it, roughly it's about 1% of, of the population. And there's not all that much variability in prevalence. However, uh, a key difference in schizophrenia uh, around the world is the course of the disease. Um, it's one of these rare cases where in more developed societies, uh, the course of the disease is worse than it is in less developed societies. Um, and it seems to be, uh, uh, this is, these explanations are somewhat speculative because no one's actually really demonstrated convincingly what are the causes that lead to this better course of the uh, of the of the disease in, in less developed societies but um, explanations that are typically talked about is that um, people in less developed societies still remain part of the community and so that they're still regularly interacting with others that they, it's more of a low relational mobility context where that they are still with the, the same people and so that they ha are provided with sort of more structural support and in, in developed societies in, in the West, often people with, with schizophrenia that they, they, well, it's treated with, with medications, which work to a degree, but people might stop taking their medications and they get alienated from uh, their relationships with others and can end up all on their own. And that's where it's, it's a, the, the most severe consequences of the disease kick in and, and people can find themselves homeless. Um, and it'd be a very devastating uh, illness. Um, so it's, um, again, so the, the, the course of the disease then is something, even though it seems to be a universal phenomenon, they've identified a lot of the biological components of it, the many genes that contribute to its likelihood, different uh, neuroanatomy, which contributes to it, but it's, um, it's still, it's the course of the disease is shaped by, by these cultural experiences.
Mm -hmm. So I have two more questions. Uh, since we're talking about culture, I think that one of the things that uh, people who do research in this area are interested in is trying to understand how ideas spread among people. So is there a set of traits that tend to characterize the ideas that are the most successful? Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, ultimately that's what is uh, cultural change is an idea spreading, an idea going from one person's head to another person's head. That's um, that's how you get cultural change. That's how you get cultural evolution. And um, so because it really is involving going from one head to another, uh, communication is involved with, with the spread of cultural ideas. Um, and so uh, they spread via our social networks. So um, that because they spread through communication, it's the people who we talk to or communicate with in some form uh, are, are the pathways through which these, these ideas spread. So people who are more at the hub of social networks then are, are, uh, have more influence. And, um, and we talk about, you know, there's influencers now in, in, in social media, and it really does sort of reflect this basic principle of, of cultural change, that those who are more connected to others, um, that ideas that pass through them are going to be more likely to spread. So that's one facet of it is who are these ideas going through? Um, other facets, though, is that, uh, you know, useful ideas spread. So if you have a, a really useful idea, if um, so, for instance, wearing masks in time of COVID is a new idea in much of the world and it spread quite rapidly. Sadly, probably not far enough that there's still uh, resistance to, but this is an example of um, a useful idea that people learn that, oh, you know, wearing a mask protects you and stops the spread of COVID. And so that's going to be an idea that spreads. And, and we, we want to be, we, generally we have pro-social motivation. So when we have some information that's useful, we have a desire to share it. It's just like, I learned there's a great sale going on and you want to share this information because because we have these pro-social motivations. So we share useful ideas, um, uh, ideas that are especially emotive, that uh, elicit a strong emotional reaction. Um, we're motivated to share and um, because we uh, feel more of a sense of connection with others when we're sharing that same emotional experience, it, it enhances our sense of connection with others. So if you have uh, an idea that's, uh, you have a story that involves some, some really emotional aspects, those are ones that you're most likely to share. You're probably most likely to embellish and exaggerate features of the story to make it even more emotional and even more likely to that, that people want to share it. So those ideas spread well, that ideas that elicit this, this, this strong uh, um, emotional uh, reaction. Um, and an, another, I think, interesting feature about uh, the spread of ideas is ideas that we process more are going to be remembered more and more likely to be shared. And one curious uh, finding is ideas that require more processing are ones that are largely familiar, but with a couple unfamiliar elements to them. And so those unfamiliar elements stick out in this context of the rest of this familiar uh, uh, setting. And so we focus on it more and we dwell on it more and it actually enhances our, our recall. And uh, a good example of this is uh, my, my colleague, Aaron Zion demonstrated this through um, 
uh, Grimm's folk tales. So the brothers Grimm uh, from Germany had they uh, you know compiled many of the most famous folk tales uh, in the world, like Cinderella or Little Red Riding Hood um, and uh, Hansel and Gretel, some of the famous ones. Um, but not all of their stories were were great stories. They actually have a lot of stories you probably never heard of too. Things like Farmer Little, um, you know the. Uh, the Jew and the Brambles. These are some stories that didn't spread. And what Aaron Noren Zion, my colleague, what he found was that the stories, that the successful Grimm Brothers stories fit a formula that they largely had about two or three unfamiliar counterintuitive elements. So like Little Red Riding Hood has like a talking wolf. You know, it's most of the story is a sensible story. A girl's going to visit her grandmother and then there's a talking wolf and the wolf eats grandmother, but Grandmother's still okay in the stomach and can be released. And um, and so those stories, um, uh, people remember them better and they share them more. And that's also the feature of the most successful stories in the world are those of myths and religions, which have been around for centuries and have spread quite broadly. Um, and that is the typical format of stories from myths and religions is largely mundane, sensible stories daily events with the occasional miracle thrown in and those are the ones that are really stick in people's memory and it makes them motivated to share so those are become very successful cultural ideas that will spread mm -hmm. so my final question what are the questions in the field of cultural psychology that haven't been answered yet and that you would like to see addressed in the yeah future? that's that's a great question well, one big one, which isn't so much the question, it's the, uh, the, the way the questions are explored, is the vast majority of our database still to this day is largely based in uh, American college students. That's where the vast majority of psychology is, uh, has been studied. And um, there's been more recently much more research coming out of east asia and that's probably the most common contrast is between north america and east asia various countries in east asia um, um but still much of the rest of the the non-western world is very understudied and so we actually just don't even know that well what is the the psychology like in, in much of the rest of the world so i'd say that at least is um uh one key element and and a reason why that's important too is you know it's, it's, most psychologists are studying convenient samples of people around them and they're the familiar people too and so we're typically studying psychological phenomena that that are familiar to us um, and familiar to north americans these are the uh the big psychological phenomena that, that we've identified in a very curious about and study. So it remains to be seen, well, what are the psychological phenomena, the big ones in many other cultures of the world? There's probably a lot of phenomena that we don't even know about yet in, in the West where this uh, psychological research is being done, which I think also reflects a very interesting cultural psychological question is why are North Americans so interested in psychology where much of the world, rest of the world is not to the same degree when it gets in I think that's an interesting question with it in and of itself. But so um, so many of the phenomena um, that 
are more common outside of the world remain to be studied. And some of those that we have been studying more recently, um, just some examples of it, like I talked a bit about face in East Asia. So that's a, a good example of phenomena that uh, we learned learned about really when we started studying questions in East Asia. Uh, concerns with honor, it's something that um, is uh, much more common in sort of uh, pastoral societies, but the idea that one needs to protect one's honor violently often um, and uh, that's a uh, seems to be actually a very significant um, aspect of many people's psychology uh, around the world and it's uh, just been less evident in many of the samples that have been studied thus far um, concerns with um, uh, it's called a dialectical reasoning that is uh, tolerating contradiction so it seems that tolerating contradiction is more common in, in East Asian societies or Western societies, people prefer cognitive consistency, and so they, they want a simple answer where this is right and that is wrong, and uh, so I don't have to deal with it anymore. We've proved that is wrong. We've proved, so there's no contradiction because I'm just labeling this part that's contradictory as wrong and to get rid of the contradiction, um, but it's tolerated much, much more in the West, So uh, I mean in East Asia. So those are um, some examples. I think... Uh, the origins of cultural differences is um, being turned to more so now. Uh, more economists are studying um, uh, cultural psychology and using some very nice mathematical tools from, from economics, which, which are able to uh, sort of look at change across time, um, which is uh, um, Nathan Nunn, an economist at Harvard, has this interesting work sort of showing that uh, the climate variability is what predicts the speed of cultural change or pla places where there's more climatic variability, culture changes more quickly. And so, you know, his data on how variable climate has been in different parts of the world and places where it's been more stable, people are doing things quite similar to how they were doing it many centuries before. And because the climate is such a big impact on the way we are means of subsistence. Um, so so that's that's an example of uh, uh, cultural change. Um um, growing importance. And I do think just, uh, yes, uh, mental health, explaining the diverse ways that people experience mental illness around the world is um, uh, something that I really don't think has been adequately explained. And, and so some are suggesting that, you know, people feel distress, maybe quite similarly around the world, but how they express that distress. They seem to be expressing it in psychologically familiar ways that once you learn an idea that many people are dealing with their stress this way, you know, some people are, you know, having eating disorders, that's how they're handling their distress. In, you know, uh, Victorian era Austria, uh, Freud was dealing with people who were experiencing hysteria and we don't study hysteria anymore. And, and some argue that it's it's no longer uh, the, the, the original condition that he was studying is just no longer very common. Um, that, that was a familiar way to express distress. Um, and so, yeah, I think trying to understand uh, what leads people to experience distress and to express that distress in, in culturally normative ways is, I think, a really interesting question that much more work needs to be done on. Okay, great. So just before we go, would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find your work? Oh, certainly. I guess Google Scholar is probably the easiest thing. Type in my name in, in Google Scholar and that takes you 
pretty much to links to various papers that I've done. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to your work in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Heine, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and I hope to have you again on the show somewhere in the future. So. Great, terrific. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with top academics and scholars from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, I also have links to that in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please leave a like, share it and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett Perga Larsen. Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Ruth Gervoz, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araujo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, and Yannick Punter. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rujewski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.